hmm, Jesus and the guys got together. He said something to them. I wonder if uh, this passage talks about another, another similar meeting. Go back uh, uh, verse 4. Gathering them together, that's a separate meaning. He told them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for something. What's going on here? Uh, you really can't read verse 9 out of context. And you should really never read a verse if you rip it out of context. So in order to appreciate the passage we want to look at that specifically talks about the ascension of Christ, Myrna, today, let's back up and get the whole context of chapter 1. So let's go back to verse 1. And we'll actually read through verse 12 so we can really understand what's going on in verses 9, 10, and 11. The first account, we call it the Gospel of Luke. I composed, Luke says, Theophilus. That's the Roman official he's addressing this document to originally. The first account, Gospel of Luke, that I composed, Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And if he's beginning, Chris, with his earthly ministry, that implies he continues doing what he does on earth through the ministry of the church after the resurrection and the ascension. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, the death of Christ as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Isn't that a wonderful truth, uh, Nicole, that everything that could possibly keep us out of heaven, Jesus knew about and died for uh, as a substitute, substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Because the death of Christ, three days later the resurrection, 40 days later, the ascension. And that's where the Gospel of Luke ends with the ascension of Christ. And that's where volume two, the book of Acts, begins. So he says, the Gospel of Luke told you about what Jesus began to do until the ascension, until the day he was taken up to heaven. 40 days after the resurrection, we have the ascension. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, the apostles, Jesus presented, presented himself alive after the cross, after his substitutionary atoning sacrifice, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Between the resurrection and ascension, there's 40 days. And speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. During that 40-day period, probably toward the end of that period, he gathered them together, Verse 4, and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. So he met with them in Jerusalem toward the end of that 40-day period and said, don't go back home to northern Israel, Galilee, but stay in Jerusalem and wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. For John, John the baptizing Jew, John the Baptist we call him, baptized with water back at the beginning of the gospel story, Matthew, Mark, Luke. But you'll be baptized, identified with the church through the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We'll read about that in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, in chapter 2 of Acts. Verse 6, so when they come together again, the actual day of the ascension now, verse 6, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? You fulfilled the lamb prophecies about being crucified for the sins of the world. Now are you going to set up the world kingdom that the prophets talked about. And Jesus said, not now. It's not for you to know the exact timing of the initiation of all that, but what I want you to focus on, every generation of the church primarily, is allowing the Holy Spirit to make you witnesses of Jesus. And he tells them, in Jerusalem, the city you're in now, so we could say in Duncan, that's the city we're all sitting in right now, 
and in all Judea and Samaria, it would be all Oklahoma and Kansas, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And uh, I'll never forget the first year during the Puebla mission trip, Tomas told us we were going to go to Kanoa, which is about 45 minutes away from um, these suburbs that we do most of our work in, uh, and the road stops at Kanoa, and nobody speaks Spanish in Kanoa. They all speak Indian, not India Indian, but Native American, the kind of language they were speaking before the Spanish got there in early 1500. So that seemed to me like the most part of the earth until I went to Mofrock one weekend when I had the privilege of teaching at Jetch, one of my students who was a pastor uh, on the Syrian border. You've probably heard of Syria of late. Mofrock Jordan's right on the Syrian border. Uh, he asked me if I'd go up there for the weekend and speak at his church. And then we kind of, uh, after church, uh, went into Syria without passports, if you know what I mean. Kind of through this dried off river valley and looked around. It's pretty interesting things. That, for me, I think of places like that. I bet Homer thinks of Jamasu, China. Homer didn't know. Pam didn't know when we went to, about 15 of us went to China in 2004 that um, uh, the main group of us would be broken into a couple of pieces and teams and sent off to other places from Harbin. Harbin's pretty remote for me to start with, but I know Homer and Pam and several of the folks went to uh, Jamasu, and that's pretty remote. But guess what? For uh, a lot of yuppie Americans living in Duncan, Oklahoma, is the remotest part of the earth. So it's, it's kind of all uh, relative in a sense, but the idea is as early as verse 8 in Acts, reinforcing the great commission Jesus had previously given them in Galilee, he's got a out-of-this-world agenda that's going to transcend colors and cultures and countries, and it continues to this day, and we're an extension of that here in Duncan, Oklahoma. Verse 9. And after he said those things, he was lifted up. He just was supernaturally ascended up into heaven. It was, it's all passive. He's not doing this. He could do it himself, but he's allowing the Father to actually exert his power to pull him up like with a tractor beam. It's like something you'd see in Star Wars, but it really happened. Jesus was lifted up. He just ascended straight up to heaven in front of the apostles so they would know. I mean, he could snap his fingers and be at the throne of God, but he does it visibly in front of the apostles so they could record it so they could say yeah that really really happened there ain't no doubt we we're not sure how you do something like that but he was lifted up supernaturally we can't reproduce this in a lab for you but it happened and while they're uh, while they were looking on so they're seeing it visibly with their eyeballs and a cloud received him out of their sight and as they were gazing intently into the sky is he going to come back or what's going to happen next while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing. And Luke gives you enough credit to re- that you're going to realize he's talking about angels that look like young men. That's why he calls them men. Phenomenological language like sunrise and sunset. Two men, two angelic witnesses to confirm what they've just seen with their eyes stood beside the apostles. And they also said, men of Galilee, out-of-towners there across the valley from Jerusalem, uh, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, the same Jesus who you have seen taken up from you into heaven, visibly, supernaturally, undeniably, 
will come again, visibly, supernaturally, undeniably. Even though we don't know the timing of the initiation of that, as he said earlier, just in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven, verse 12, then in the aftermath of the angel saying, uh, don't just stand there, do something <laughs> kind of thing, get on with verse 8, uh, they returned to Jerusalem, it's about three quarters of a mile walk, from the mountain called Olivet, we call it the Mount of Olives typically, which is near Jerusalem, just across the Kidron Valley, about a Sabbath day's journey away. Today we're going to look at the awesome ascension. And uh, we're looking at this amazing period in time uh, that's climaxed by the ascension. The death of Christ three days later, what happens? The resurrection. Forty days later, the ascension. We're watching that, reading about that. going to be thinking about the implications and the reality of that. If you were looking straight down on the city of Jerusalem and at that point, uh, of course, the temple dominated uh, Jerusalem at that point. There's a valley right here called the Kidron Valley, and then the mountain, Mount of Olives, is right there. So somewhere from that mountain, Jesus ascended. And according to Zechariah, and we'll close with Zechariah this morning, chapter 14, the Old Testament prophet says when the Messiah comes to set up his kingdom, he will, what, Colleen? He'll come back to the Mount of Olives. And it's also interesting, in 586 B.C., just before the Babylonians destroyed the temple, you notice the temple faces east. Uh, we're told that the glory of God, uh, Ezekiel 10 talks about this, uh, left the uh, Holy of Holies, went through the front gate, hovered over the Mount of Olives, and ascended up. And at that point, a very debased, uh, uh, skeptical nation said, We's in trouble. The Babylonians have the city surrounded. The glory of God leaves town. Ichabod, it's over. And, you know, uh, the United States is not a reincarnation of Old Testament Israel, but I look at uh, a lot of things going on in the country and I wonder, you know, is that is that where we're headed? But we're going to look at the ascension this morning. Uh, you know, I, I'm really happy to say I took this picture, not because I'm a great photographer, but... Uh, Homer will remember there's a place called the Tower of David, which has been turned into a museum. And typically you'll see pictures of people on the Mount of Olives or uh, Garden of Gethsemane looking back at you. And so you look at the other side of the Temple Mount. But this is from uh, the totally 180 degrees different. So I'm in the kind of the southwest corner of uh, the old city of Jerusalem looking back past the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives. That's the Mount of Olives there, uh, Kylene. And as I've said many times there's a church that was built in the fourth century called the church of the ascension um, which commemorates the ascension even though the ascension itself didn't necessarily probably didn't take place from that very point okay so we're gonna look at the ascension this morning and emphasize that the ascension of christ is proof positive that christianity is an out of this world reality and uh, that it fulfills some really important old testament prophecy old testament prophecy and it is kind of the down payment or the earnest or kind of a validation of the reality that future prophecy is going to be fulfilled also. But before we dive into our evaluation and study of the ascension, the awesome ascension of Christ, uh, let's uh, pray for teachability and for troops. And uh, Stan, uh, Heath, would you pray for us in that direction?
Amen. Thank you. Let's talk about uh, context, and then we'll look at the content of Acts 1, 9 through 11. If you want to get a, a good conception of the whole of the 28 chapters, we're suggesting this uh, memory aid, eight-word sentence, Jesus is alive as head of his bride. And if you break down the, the word Jesus in that memory aid, chapter 1, J, is just reminding you that in, in chapter 1 of Acts, we read about Jesus ascending to heaven. We'll look at that very uh, concertedly this morning. E relates to the essence of chapter 2, which is the establishment of the New Testament church. The New Testament church is not in Exodus. It's not in Leviticus. Uh, we don't sacrifice animals. As I've often said, there are what hundreds and hundreds of Christian denominations, but I don't know any of them that sacrifice animals because all of us understand the Old Testament animal sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to one ultimate reality, the sacrifice of the Messiah as the Lamb of God for our sins. So we have the establishment of the New Testament church, which is bigger than the Assemblies of God or the Southern Baptist Convention or certainly Tanglewood Bible Fellowship or Dallas Theological Seminary in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 3, we have the salvation of a lame beggar. Peter says, silver and gold have I not, but such that I have I will give you. So apparently Peter didn't think you got necessarily rich and famous. Now, he got very famous, but he didn't, didn't get rich uh, in the ministry. And that's the way it works for most of us. Joel Olstein, not, not true, but I mean for most of us. Uh, chapter 4, Unleashing a Persecution, really directed at Peter and John as a result of all the good publicity they're getting because of the salvation of the lame beggar. But we'll see uh, Peter say something amazing uh, he says, basically, they told the guys, uh, don't tell anybody about Jesus anymore and we'll let you go. And he said, hey, you tell me what I got to do. Do I obey you or do I obey God? Here's the principle. Always respect and respond obediently to legitimate human authority until or unless it's a direct sin to obey human authority. And then you say respectfully, no, sir, I can't shoot that Jew. That's what a German soldier should have said. I wasn't there. Uh, I hope I have enough guts to say that under that circumstance. In this case, the apostles were not bring down the government. They were not anti-establishment per se, but they had a revolutionary message. The establishment recognized that, said, you can't say that anymore. They said, we can't help but say it. And the guys that ran away when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane are willing to stand firm where, with people who have the power of death. How come? Because they'd seen the resurrected Jesus. And they realized that death is not a period, it's a comma. Right? The now is real, and it's really important, but it's not the ultimate, and it's only temporary. So Jesus ascends to heaven, establishment of the New Testament church, salvation of a lame beggar, big miracle to let Jerusalem know the apostles are carrying the message of Jesus. Uh, sure enough, the powers that be react negatively. And then, unfortunately, uh, you know, the church over 2,000 years often uh, shoots itself in the foot or shoots and kills its wounded, and those are both errors we want to avoid, but uh, we're going to see major overt financial sin in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. But we're looking at Jesus ascending, and today we're going to look at the awesome uh, ascension. If you look at chapter 1 as a whole, you see the prologue to this book. Then we move from the literal bodily supernatural resurrection, okay? to the literal bodily supernatural ascension, right? Verses 4 through 11. And then watch this. Like I, 
I kidded last week, uh, we got 28 chapters, we're taking like two chapters a week, so sometime in the year 2072 we might be finished with this study, but we're actually, Lord willing, next week, uh, going to look at all of verses 12 through 26 in 45 minutes. That's the challenge, you know, so we'll have to stay really hard this week, but we're going to finish up that second portion as we look at the ascension today, and it breaks down very simply into a description of the ascension itself and then the angelic aftermath. And it's just like God, not, when they're looking at this stuff with their own eyeballs, that's still hard to believe. He reinforces the reality of it, the literal reality of it, David, by having these angelic messengers say, yeah, what you just saw really did happen, and it's important because it validates the fact that at the second advent that the world scoffs at, it's going to happen again. Only he's going to be coming down. That up. Look at verse 9. The awesome ascension. Uh, when you read competing religious literature in the first century, everything is highly elaborated. It would take them 18 chapters to describe an ascension because they add hocus pocus and all kinds of superstitious and elaborations. Uh, the scripture is so subtle, it just states these things that happen with no attempt to try to explain how because they have no idea how. They just know God did it. And you read about the ascension explicitly in just a couple of words. After he'd said these things, the things he said in verses 6 through 8 about not worrying about obsessively about the initiation of end times prophecy, but be a witness where you are now, he was lifted up. Boom. Well, we never saw that before. Um, we don't know how he did it, but it, it happened. He was lifted up. He just went straight up. Uh, now, one thing that made Michael Jordan such a freak was he had an amazing vertical jump. Didn't he coach? Ken was a, a basketball coach. He's a, uh, an expert on all things basketball. But this is the greatest vertical leap of all time. It goes from the Mount of Olives all the way to heaven. And I like that. I was, always, I was always white, slow, and had no vertical leap. Other than that, I could have been a really good basketball star, no doubt. But he was lifted up while they were looking on. So it was visible, physical, albeit supernatural. And a cloud received them out of uh, their sight. Uh, he was lifted up. Uh, that word that's translated was lifted up is passive, which means the action is receiving, not producing the subject of the verb. This is God the Father's uh, power pulling his son up, even though Jesus could do it himself. Uh, we're also told, by the way, that the resurrection was something that God the Father did too for Jesus. As deity, he could do it for himself, but he's totally submitting himself to the will of the Father, including uh, the atoning work and the resurrection. He's not in, initiating that. He's receiving that. And I think he's doing things like that because I mean, he, he gives up the independent use of his divine attributes so he can experience the human condition generally. And the passage David taught us uh, back in December, the uh, Philippians 2 passage talks about he took on the form of a human being even though he was the God-man. But I think the one reason the Lord... Uh, and the scripture emphasizes he, he passively allows God the Father to do things for him or in him. It's because a lot of times that's what we got to do. But I've got a friend with a problem and I don't know what to say to her. I'll just have talk to, uh, Pastor Brad talk to her. Well, I can talk to her, but I've got no credibility with her. She's 23 years old. I'm 161. I just feel 161. I'm actually 61. The twins, uh, we found out late Thursday we were taking care of the twins again which is a joy. They're at a fantastic stage. It's so fun to be around them. But man, they will wipe you out. 
I feel like I've been run over by a by a steamroller, man. But it's a, it's a it's a you know it's you're tired, but it's a good kind of tired. But he's just lifted up, and a lot of times, uh, as we're going to emphasize in a minute, men of Galilee. The angel refers to these guys, the witnesses, as men of Galilee. And that sounds so great, you know. And, and I'm just going to tell you, as much as I love Jerusalem, I love Galilee. I mean, Galilee is my favorite part of Israel. It's just so beautiful. Debbie's been there. She's shaking her head. Yeah. Remember Rick and Donetta, how beautiful it is, just awesome. And you really do feel like, you know, I've been here before, and you say, well, that's not possible, we don't believe in reincarnation, but it's like my heart has been designed to relate to this place. It's tremendous. But he calls them men of Galilee, which sounds very romantic, sounds very spiritual, but it really means, hey, you seed pickers, hey, you low-status, non-theological, astute fishermen, you know, he's referring to them like that. And the point is, God can use all kinds of raw material, human raw material, to accomplish his purposes, even somebody like me or you. You don't have to be special in the world's eyes. It's about our availability, not about our ability. So, verse 9, after he said these things, at the end of that 40-day period between the resurrection and this event, he's lifted up. While they're looking, so it's visible, tangible, physical, actually happened, go back in a time machine, you're going to see it, this isn't wish fulfillment this isn't a fable it's not a myth uh it's not an allegory it actually happened and he was uh as they're looking on a cloud received him out of their sight there's a lot of statements about clouds relative to the ascension here and to the second coming and it doesn't mean it's got to be a cloudy day so if you wake up and it's clear you don't have to you know can't happen it's talking about glory clouds when the uh tabernacle was finished at the book of exodus a cloud filled the Holy of Holies, right? When Solomon dedicated the temple, a cloud goes into the Holy of Holies, right? Uh, this cloud is a manifestation of the deity of Jesus Christ, which is veiled, as David pointed out. Uh, the Philippians passage says, during his virgin conception, virgin birth, life, death, resurrection, and his ascension, the God the Father, as it were, turns the switch back on. The one exception of Jesus veiling his glory during his first uh, advent was what? Very important event. The transfiguration, right? That's the real Jesus, right? So this cloud is a display or an expression of Jesus' deity, and it's a strong affirmation of his deity. Okay, that's the awesome ascension, and as important as this event is, it's very simply described, and that's the nature of Scripture. Uh, I know this is uh, too late for most of you guys, but there used to be a show called Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, you know. And as I've told the young adults, you know, we're kind of, Debbie and I are kind of hooked on this thing called Diagnosis Murder. Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke plays a doctor who solves murders. Every single episode, somebody in that hospital gets murdered. You'd think, you know, to me, I don't want to work there. But I mean, and he always solves them. And his son's a detective and they got other people and stuff. But he always gets it right. So, boom, just the facts, man. Now, let's look at the angelic aftermath. And this is just like God reinforcing for them and for us has really happened. You can take it to the bank. And as they were gazing intently, it's like they don't want to leave. And as I'm going to emphasize later, I mean, they thought they'd lost him when he was crucified. They, even though he had told them it was going to happen and what would happen after, they totally rationalized it. And they thought they'd lost him. And they're in shock and hurting. And then, boom, three days later, here he comes back. He's, right, he's really them. Uh, 
And, of course, they were very gullible. Those guys were very gullible. They just, you know, they thought somebody, a woman had seen them. They were totally going to buy that. No, they'd heard the, the reports. They still didn't believe it. Uh, what, what did Thomas do? Thomas wasn't there on Easter evening when the other guys saw him. And when he shows up a few minutes later, time, see, it's not good to be late for things. See, you don't want to be late all the time. You got, might miss something important. Uh, they said, hey, we've seen the Lord. And he said, that's great. No, he said, I can't believe that. No way. He's dead. Dead people don't come back alive. Well, unless I put my hands in the wounds, I'm not going to believe it. And what happens, Gerald, a week later? Jesus appears again. Thomas is there. And I think, I don't think the Lord is scolding him. I think he's got a big smile on his face. Hey, big boy, check it out. You know, that's kind of the way it was, I think. We'll find out when we ask Thomas at some point. But look at this. I love this in verse 10. I use this crazy term, phenomenological language, and you think, man, I don't want to think on Sunday mornings. Well, maybe you should, because you've got to have certain concepts to understand the Bible. Now, after he had said these things, he was looked it up. Cloud receives them out of his sight. Look at the angelic uh, aftermath. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, he's disappeared in the clouds, but maybe they're thinking he's going to come back or something or say one more thing. Uh, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. We saw two men at the tomb. We see two men at the ascension, but they're not men. What are they, Sonia? They're angels. Now, many people, I, I already knew this. I am your third biggest fan, right? Always. I want to be your agent. That's just me. That's my retirement program. But uh, at least one person told me, Sonia sang like an angel, which is a simile, Right? Uh, she has an angelic voice, you know, that's a metaphor. But uh, this is an example of phenomenological language where you talk about things the way they look. You're not trying to describe the reality, you're just describing the scene, okay? Sunrise, sunset, same kind of thing. When the Bible talks about sunrise, sunset, it's not saying that the uh, earth is the center of the universe, it's just saying that's what it looks like. And modern, uh, Phyllis, modern uh, weather men, meteorologists, uh, after they use their Doppler radar, that will say, which is the highest of technology and the computer uh, forecast and all that, will say sunrise tomorrow will be at 6.58. It's just phenomenological language. It looks like that. We know it's more detailed about the uh, mechanism, but the two men in white here are clearly angels, and Luke gives you enough credit. He assumes you can figure out that's what he means. So here's the principle. I, I, I word it in a way to sound controversial just to get your attention but it really is true. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. And neither does your spouse, your parent, your boss, your coach, or your pastor. Uh, this morning uh, when I left, because we had the car seats in my car, I was going to drive Debbie's car, and my car doesn't go in the garage because our garage is really a storage shed with just enough room for her car. But my car was outside of the garage, and she was going to drive my car an hour later to come here, and so we were concerned that maybe, you know, if you watch the Weather Channel, well, you, you want to watch KSWO because the Weather Channel always exaggerates about our weather. That's just me. But uh, and I've told you a thousand times not to exaggerate. That's called hyperbole. That's another figure of speech. But, uh, yeah, so we, she was concerned. We weren't concerned. She was concerned. <laughs> there might be ice on the car she was going to have to drive an hour later, which meant she wanted me to check and clean it off if there was. But... I went out there on my way to church this morning, and I looked at it, and there was no ice. In, there was no ice on the car, so I just stuck my head in, and I said, "Hey, Debbie, there's no not there's no ice anywhere." 
That's what I said. And I thought, hey, as I was driving to church, I said, that's a good example that I meant what I meant and not woodenly what I said. You have something like that in the Bible. There's no eyes anywhere. Trust me. Somebody like Richard Dawkins, the brainiac who's the world's greatest atheist, will say, hey, errors in the Bible. Like where? Where that Brad McCoy, that minor character in Second Hezekiah, said there's no to his wife Debbie, his first wife, there's no ice anywhere. And obviously the Bible is saying there's no ice in the North Pole, South Pole, or anywhere, right? That's what it says. That's not what I meant. I meant no ice anywhere on the car. And I assumed, and she's she's brilliant. I mean, she she's not only really good looking, she's brilliant. She knew exactly what I meant there. So yeah, uh two men, that's what it says. What does it mean? Two angels, right? You've got to use your capacity for abstract thinking. Uh, the Bible means what it means by what it says the way it says it in context. And that's why we're going to kind of, you know, look closely at some things and emphasize details because you need that to understand what it means. Now, just understanding Bible facts will only puff you up and make you a Pharisee unless you move the information, Rita, from your head to your heart. And then it's just not factoids. It's truth transforming you from the inside out. And that's the point, Right. So we're talking about men here, but he means angels. And the angels are saying, hey, men of Galilee, hey, uh, I know you're nothing in the world's uh, estimation. You guys are from the, the northern region of the uh, the Holy Land, as we call it. You know, the Jews lived in Judea and in Galilee. And these guys are from Galilee, but where are they? Just outside of Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives there. So these guys are from the non-sophisticated, today they call it flyover country. You know, all the elites live on the East Coast, the West Coast, and a couple of big cities uh, like Chicago, and they call the rest of us, we live in flyover country. We don't really count. We cling to our guns and our religion, what one of them once said. But we're not all bad. I mean, come on. But uh, men of Galilee sounds like a really holy thing to say, but he's really saying, hey, we realize, uh, and you realize, you don't look like any great shakes, but it's not our ability, it's our availability that determines how God uses people uh, who are believers, and here he uses these guys as the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, right? Uh, and he says, this Jesus, this same person, it's not going to be Buddha, it's not going to be Muhammad, uh, it's not going to be uh, Joseph Smith who started the, the Mormon church, this Jesus the one who was crucified for your sins, resurrected, who just ascended literally supernaturally to heaven, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come. When's that going to happen, by the way? Well, verse 7 says you can't know when it's going to happen, exactly the initiation of the, of the whole system. But he'll come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. I love that statement. That statement has really just gripped me for a long time. I'm not sure why, but I think about it a lot. I just think it's pretty neat to have these angels validating what they just seen. But uh, let me uh, give you my extended paraphrase of this. This Jesus, and then I put in brackets trying to be funny, but it's really true. Somebody tell the History Channel that the Jesus of history, quote unquote, and the Christ of faith is the same person. Uh, theologians use terms in certain ways that they know the average layperson doesn't understand not to make information more accessible, but to make it less accessible. And the two terms you want to be aware of when you watch 
certain documentaries. And not everything on the History Channel is bad. I've, I've been surprised at how good some of their stuff has been on biblical topics at times. Uh, if, you know, if you get both sides, it's, it's great. If you get uh, not just uh, uh, Bart Ehrman, who's kind of probably the best-known New Testament radical skeptic today, uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, if you get countering him, maybe uh, Daryl Bach or Daniel Wallace. Daniel Wallace had like a two-and-a-half-hour debate with Bart Ehrman a couple of years ago. You can watch it on the Internet. It's really good stuff. If they have both sides, I always feel like we're being treated fairly. I feel like all we want is a level playing field. I'm not trying to cram my faith down America. I just want to present it unvarnished and give me a chance to explain what I mean because I don't mean what I say necessarily. I mean what I mean by what I say, right? But, uh, yeah, uh, this same Jesus, the two titles you want to watch out for are the Jesus of history. That's what skeptics uh, use to refer to the real Jesus if you could go back in a time machine. And we all know he was just a trendy kind of liberal social reformer who never thought of himself as anything special. He was just trying to give some enlightenment about being nice to women and poor people to the disciples. That's all he was doing. But he got in the way of the man, and the man crucified him, and the church turned him into something he wasn't, which they call the Christ of faith. You have the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And skeptics want to say those are two different things. The Jesus of history is the actual person. Christ of faith is what the church made up later. Uh, but you've got the, uh, the witnesses writing the bulk of the New Testament. They all die for this thing. They're all totally transformed by their contact with the resurrected Christ. And so somebody tell the History Channel, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith is the same person. This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come again to to uh, climax the end times in just the same way you watched him going to heaven. So, Joe, how did he go into heaven? Visibly, right? Literally, but supernaturally and undeniably. Now, you know, at this point, and again, the emotional impact and roller coaster these guys have been on, you know, it says they're intently gazing in the sky. These guys are just emotionally washed out. I mean, at this point, a sense of loss might have been paralyzing the 11 apostolic witnesses. Uh, they thought they lost the Lord on Good Friday, and then he's back, and uh, then 40 days later, he goes again. And rather than, you know, the... I think the uh, ascension without this immediate reassurance that this isn't permanent, this is in fact kind of a picture and a validation of future prophecy. Jesus is going to come back, you're going to see him again. Uh, I think it's very necessary, not just theologically, but psychologically or emotionally uh, for these guys. Uh, the ascension apart from the promise that he's going away, but you will see him again, uh, might have crushed the apostles. It might have made them uh, passive and unable to move. But the reality of the risen, ascended Christ in heaven who's going to come back and who promises things like this. Look at John 14. Now, maybe uh, some preachers get so detailed in some of the analytical things we forget the emotional impact of these truths in the person of Jesus and how he should not just intellectually and theologically stimulate us, but uh, meet our emotional needs too. Uh, you know, the guys really weren't listening that closely in the upper room, but I'm quite sure after the ascension, they started rethinking everything Jesus said in detail. And I'm quite sure statements like this became especially uh, 
comforting for them as it should be for all of us. And he's talking about the fact, uh, I'm going to go away and you can't come right now, but you will go to where, I, where I'm going. And then he says, basically, don't panic. I'm leaving, but don't panic. Keep on trusting in God the Father's plan. Keep on trusting in me personally. I'm not going to hurt you. I've got good things for you, but it all fits together in time. In my Father's house, we call that heaven, there are many dwelling places. So it's not just the Southern Baptists who make it, okay? Just say, oh, no. Or it's not just Dallas Seminary people who make it. All born-again believers. If it weren't so, I would have told you. If this was just a philosophy of life where you're going to get killed painfully for it, I would have just told you to run for the hills. But this is an out-of-this-world reality. And I'm going, in part, to prepare a place for you. If you're a believer, put your name in the blank. I'm going, in part, to prepare a place for Rick Schallemeyer, for Ron Miller, uh, for Debbie McCoy. Just put your name in the blank if you're a believer. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And so go back to Acts 1. They're looking intently, and the guy says, hey, don't just stand there looking at the sky. Get, get the work. You know, he's, he told you what to do in verse 8. But be assured and reassured and encouraged by this fact. This same Jesus who went up back to heaven is going to come down and end history on his terms, and you're on his side. He's on your side, and that's that's good. And by the way, when he says prepare a place for you, for you, that's plural. So that includes every believer. You know, the core message of the Bible says that uh, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I like to say, uh, at our worst, we break our own standards, much less God's. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord because Jesus died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins, right? And whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Uh, Rick read so well the Ephesians passage, for by grace, what does grace mean? I grew up watching the Winter Olympics when Jim McKay was doing all the commentary. This is 100 years ago, right after uh, Newton invented gravity, you know. Um, he didn't invent it. Um, I think that was Galileo. But as, uh, yeah, uh, just a little kid who loved the Olympics, and I watched, I'd get so hyped up. I was, I'm five years old. I'm watching the Winter Olympics, and we never won anything. It was always some guy, some Norwegian. I couldn't pronounce his name. He won all the gold medals. But I remember watching the figure skating where the East German judge would always give our gal, you know, negative two, you know. Uh, probably had a gun to the guy's head, you know, uh, when he went back home to East Berlin. But it was a long time ago in the Cold War. But, uh, yeah, the only time I ever heard, ever heard the word grace was when they were talking about figure skaters. So I go to Sunday school and talk about God's grace. I thought, well, he's just kind of, you know, elegant in the way he moves around and stuff. But uh, I found out grace means unmerited favor. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't unearn it. You can't undeserve it. So for by grace, unmerited favor, unmerited favor of God, uh, are you saved through faith? Faith is a rational act, but it's non-meritorious. It's an active, receptive trust. Uh, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. For by grace are you saved through faith in Christ, because he died for your sins and rose again, and not of yourselves, so it's not something you do for yourself. Uh, it's the gift of God, not of works, so there's nothing to brag about. If I gave Steve, Steve's not a golfer, but if I gave you the brand-new tailor-made driver, which I think has a suggested retail price of four ninety nine, but they nobody sells it for higher than three ninety nine. But I'm going to keep the four ninety nine tag there because I want to make points with you. You know, if I gave you that and said this is a gift, 
And then a week later, I sent you a bill in the mail, four four ninety nine. It's not a gift. That was a sale, right? Salvation is not, let's make a deal. Lord, I'll give you this, you give me that. You do part of it, I'll do the rest of it. It's not that. It's a free gift. How much of our sins did Jesus die for on the cross, Gerald? All of them. How many of your sins were future when Jesus died on the cross? All of them. How many did he die for? All of them. And so he gives us eternal life as a gift. And uh, that's a good thing because God's got a lot more for us than the now. The now is important. Okay, kids? So go to school. Work hard, right? And learn how to read and write and all that good stuff. But uh, the now is only temporary, right, Shannon? And it's not ultimate at all. Yeah, so I think these guys might have become paralyzed in grief and in remorse if they thought we had him, we lost him, we had him, he's gone, and now he just told us to do the best we can. Uh, he's coming back, and he's going to send the Holy Spirit, who's the third person of the Trinity, but who's often called the Spirit of Jesus. And when you look at the Upper Room Discourse, he's saying, hey, I'm not going to just be with you. I'm going to be inside of you through the power of the Holy Spirit so you can do everything I want you to do, one step at a time, one decision at a time, right? So in the ministry of Jesus, think of this. God entered into the human condition on earth. In the ascension that we just read about, perfect humanity in the God-man Savior Jesus entered into the abode of God in heaven as our human representative, redeemer, and advocate. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. The ascension means one of us is up there in a resurrection body, albeit the unique second person of the Trinity who took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. One of us is in heaven, in the honored place. And so Tommy Lovett is a guy who has believed in Jesus Christ and loves Jesus Christ with all his heart, uh, has an advocate in heaven. Uh, Jesus is our, paric- uh, he's, he's our uh, paraclete. He's, uh, the Holy Spirit's called a paraclete in the Upper Discourse, but Jesus called a paraclete in First uh, John. And he's our defense attorney, not a uh, district attorney. He's our defense attorney. He's, he's never lost a case. Look at Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago, Old Testament to the fathers in the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, in the generation in which I think Barnabas was writing Hebrews, uh, we're not sure who wrote it, uh, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, the son of God, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now watch this. When or after Jesus had made purification of sins, when did that happen? At the cross, right? Substitution, atonement, sacrifice. What happened three days after that? Resurrection. What happens 40 days after that? Ascension. After he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When did Jesus sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high? At the end of the ascension, when he was in effect, coronated. They call it, theologians call it the session of Christ where heaven officially recognizes all the accomplishments of the first advent, including primarily the uh, substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Christ. Uh, let me end this way. The ascension is proof positive that Christianity is an out-of-this-world reality, bigger than the now, and it fulfills a critical Old Testament prophecy and anticipates the fulfillment of all outstanding future prophecy so that looks like a bad eye test, so we're going to go, we're going to look at that in a minute. 
It's just a little fuzzy. Let's look at some verses where Jesus talks about the ascension before, during, and after the ascension. Look at John chapter 13. I'm going to go real fast. If you can't catch up with me, that's okay. I'll try to read slowly once I get there. John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, this is the upper room discourse, you know that. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, that's the ascension. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Drop down to verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God, virgin conception, virgin birth, incarnation, and was going back to God. That's the ascension, right? Look at uh, John 17. Upper Room Discourse is all about how do you function uh, as a believer when Jesus isn't physically walking around with you anymore. And Jesus says, you abide in me. You recognize and respond to me at a personal, relational level. You don't just obey a bunch of rules. You obey the rules, but for the right reasons. 17.5, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. When did Jesus get his glory back? At the ascension, right? He's seeing the Death, resurrection, ascension is one thing with three major aspects, and he's looking at the final aspect of that. It's pretty cool. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I, was, I was reading some people's uh, theological musings and analysis of the ascension this week, and one person said 25% of the New Testament epistles refer directly or indirectly to the ascension. That seemed like a high number to me. But you start looking for it, and it's all over the place. I think a lot of times we kind of fuzz it up when we read. But uh, a good example would be Ephesians 1. If I can find Ephesians. Ephesians 1.18. And the punchline's a couple of verses into this, so kind of hang in there. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1.18, I'm praying for you Ephesian believers, and as your pastor, I could pray for you and for me that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know more intently and more experientially what is the hope of His calling for you, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints which you have a stake in, and what's the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ. God the Father is the author of the plan, Jesus as the active agent of the plan, when he raised him, God the Father raised him. Jesus passively submits to that, depends on that. When he, God the Father, raised him, Jesus, from the dead, and 43 days you know, after the cross, 40 days after the resurrection, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power. Where is Jesus now physically visualizing his presence? At the right hand of God the Father. And that outranks the UN and everything. Even the Galactic Council and Star Wars. This outranks everything like that. Look at, uh, we looked at Hebrews 1. Let's look at Hebrews 4. The ascension is just kind of understood uh, as a major thing in the New Testament. A lot of times if, if, if we uh, overlook any major aspect of the ministry of Christ, it may be the ascension, which is to our detriment, obviously. Uh, Hebrews 4.14, the last three verses of the chapter. Therefore, since we have a great high priest that outranks all the Old Testament high priests by a factor of infinity, 
who has passed through the heavens. When did Jesus pass through the heavens? At the ascension, right, Myrna? That's when he passed through the heavens. Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Don't be ashamed of the faith on prom night. For we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. He experienced the human condition. And now with glorified humanity, he's in heaven, accepted by God the Father, and he's our defense attorney for a believer. But one who's tempted in all kinds of different ways as we are yet without sin, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace because Jesus is right next to God the Father whom we're praying to. So you can't fail when you pray. Look at uh, Hebrews 6. Actually, I want to look at Hebrews 8.1, but I want to read some context there. So if you're trying to catch up with me here, look at Hebrews 8.1, and let me read you some context. And kind of hang in there, but this is all critically important. He's talking about the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over the Old Testament whole system. And the writer says, the former, the Old Testament priests that did the animal sacrifices, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers. There were thousands and thousands of those guys. Because they were prevented by death from continuing. Every generation had to have a new set of human priests in the Old Testament. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, that's where he is now because of the ascension. Who does not need daily like those Old Testament Levitical priests that had to offer up sacrifices constantly. Who does not need daily like those formerly uh, effective and legitimate priests in the Old Testament to offer up sacrifices. First for his own sins. Jesus didn't have any. Uh, and then for others because he did this once for all when he offered up himself on the cross. For the law appoints men, just mortals, as Old Testament priests and high priests who are weak but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever now the main point in what i'm saying here is this we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high when did that happen steve at the ascension session when he's welcome back into heaven now watch this look at matthew 21 And I'm actually going to emphasize this for a minute and then we'll stop because I know I'm going long, but this is just too good uh, not to emphasize in this context since we're thinking about all this. Look at Matthew 21. Uh, and I know it's hard to, hard to think deeply on Sundays. I mean, Sunday's your day off, right? And you only think deeply at work and school. But uh, look at the way Jesus approaches an issue here. And I said 21, I actually mean 22. Look at Matthew 22, verse 41. Uh, this is a few days before the crucifixion in Jerusalem. The bad guys, the religious professionals, are trying to make Jesus say something they can use against him, and he's answering all these trick questions. And then, at the end of their questioning of him, he asked them a question. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, because they run out of questions to ask him to try to trip him up, Jesus asked them a question. Now it's his turn to ask a question. And they say, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said, he's the son of David. He's going to be descendant of David, King David. And then Jesus says to them, if that's true, what do you do with this? Then how does David, who wrote Psalm 110, in the Spirit, under inspiration, right? Holy Spirit superintends the human authors. Why does David call him his boss, his Lord, his superior, if he's David's great-great-great-grandson, which means in Jewish thinking he would be his 
David's inferior. He's just a little boy. Saying, and then verse 44 is a quote from a psalm in the Old Testament. Don't look at that so much. Look at this. And I know it's a little bit fuzzy, but uh, hang in there with me. When you go to Psalm 110, and you need to say Psalm 110, right? Uh, you have a superscription, just as inspired as the rest of the psalm. Who's the human author of Psalm 110? That'd be David, right? And Psalm 110 says, the Lord, is that a lowercase or an uppercase R? Yeah. All, that's, a, that's in kind of an italicized script, but those are all capital letters. The translators are telling you something. The Lord says to my Lord. Is that a lowercase or an uppercase R? That's lowercase. Lord, L-O-R-D, L-O-R-D, that's all caps. That's lower. You capitalize the first letter, but everything else is lowercase. That's the translator telling you we're, we're using uh, English, the same English word, to translate two different Hebrew words. What's, it, what's the Hebrew? The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Now watch this. Three major terms for God. But the, the most important one, the salvation, the personal covenantal name for God is Yahweh. looks like that in Hebrew. Is translated like that in English. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You see that? When English translators see that term in the Old Testament for God, they translate it with all caps or, or some form of that, like we just saw. So since you know that now, and you see that Psalm 110 starts with the statement, the Lord, all caps, what does that mean? That means that David's referring to a person that is quite often referred to as Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's the, the, the God of salvation, the author of plan of salvation. Now, there's another Hebrew word used for God in the Old Testament that's translated Lord, but Daryl, only the first letter is capitalized. And when you see that, that's the English translator saying, we're not talking about Yahweh, we're talking about Adonai. And Adonai can be used for just a human superior, a boss, or a king. It just means somebody who outranks you, that has power over you. Okay. Now, look and see what Jesus does here with this. He says, basically, okay, who's the Messiah? And they said, well, he's going to be the descendant of David. He's going to be a political uh, leader for us. And Jesus says, that's not possible. Because if all the Messiah is is a human descendant of David, he outranks David. And David would never call his great-great-great-grandson his Lord. But in Psalm 110, it says, and Jesus quotes that. And he says, David and the Holy Spirit wrote this, the Lord, all cap, Yahweh, God the Father, says to my Lord, now, who's the human author of this psalm? So when David writes this from his perspective and refers to my Lord, the my pronoun there is referring to David. Yahweh, God the Father, says to David's, my, the human author's Adonai, my boss, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Where did God the Father tell God the Son to sit down in heaven, and let's wait for the end times to commence. What event that's described in Acts 1, 9 through 11, starts with an A, has nine letters, whatever it is. Yeah. It's the ascension. Let me diagram it. David is living in 1000 BC, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's seeing the aftermath of the ascension, and he's saying, hey, there's going to be an event where the Messiah... Yahweh says to Adonai, God the Father says to God the Son, and by the way, Adonai is my superior because he's deity. He's the second verse trinity. Sit at the exalted place in heaven until 
And we know the date of that event will be August 17, 2012. No, that's already, no. Some groups want to date it uh, in the past and say it was spiritual and nobody saw it. But what does the angel say? This same Jesus is going to come back the same way it's going to be visible. So it's actually going to be in August of 2027. So you just write that down. Now, we don't know. Indefinite future until your enemies become a footstool for your feet. How do the enemies of God on earth become Messiah's footstool? Second advent, right? That's when he established the kingdom. So my point is, this is Old Testament. And, and by the way, see, I tried to I, I hid that from you. That's what David says. We know as New Testament believers, he's talking about an event that happens after the death of the Messiah, after the resurrection, and in conjunction with the ascension, right? So we're looking at the ascension of Christ in the Old Testament. The ascension of Christ is glorified humanity having finished the work of atonement, being accepted in heaven until such time the end times kick in. And that person, the person of Jesus Christ, is not just your Savior, He's your defense attorney. He's your advocate. Uh, he prays for you. He prays along with you. And uh, it's an out-of-this-world reality. Okay, So this is very, very important. For some reason, we don't emphasize the ascension. Maybe because, and I will finish with this, maybe because there's been a tendency in church history to say, yes, Jesus did something about sin on the cross, but what he does is part of it, and what you do it through our group does the rest of it. And I think maybe reformers and other thinkers that wanted to say, no, the death of Christ on the cross is everything we need to apply to us to be good to go to heaven. It is finished, he said, remember? Maybe we haven't emphasized the ascension because we're wanting people to emphasize and focus on the cross and the resurrection. That's the gospel. The gospel is Christ died for our sins and rose again, right? But the ascension is a logical outworking of that, and it really sets the scene for so many other things, and it reemphasizes for Derek and for me that Christianity, biblical Christianity, is an out-of-this-world reality. And we've got to see it that way. And it needs to be important enough for us that it's what we center on, not just something we uh, use as an accessory on Sundays when we've got nothing better to do. Okay, Father, help us to be gripped by the reality of the deity of Jesus Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the glory, the greatness of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and coming, second coming in the future, that we might live a contagious, consistent Christian lifestyle to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.